Anyone can visit the Statue of Liberty or gawk at the Eiffel Tower, but if the typical tourist hotspots don't do enough to feed your curiosity or sense of adventure, you've come to the right place. Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Our guest today is Ella Morton. Ella is in the business of guiding people to the road less traveled. She's associate editor at Atlas Obscura and co-author of the Atlas Obscura book. Ella, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. So what's the mission of Atlas Obscura? The mission of Atlas Obscura is to uncover the world's hidden wonders. And we do that by showing what is out there in the world that people may be walking past every day and not realizing is there, and they just need someone to point it out to them. So the classic example that we give of what Atlas Obscura can uncover is the Eiffel Tower, Everyone knows the Eiffel Tower. Everyone goes there. It's the typical thing. But people may not know that inside the Eiffel Tower, right near the top, there is a secret apartment that was built by Gustav Eiffel to impress his friends that has like plush carpeting and a grand piano. So there may be things that are hiding in plain sight, just like that, that you don't know about. You just need a little, just someone to point you in the right direction. So don't just gawk from street level, go up and check it out. Yeah, that's that's sort of the, the ethos that we have is like, go down that alleyway, ask that person what's there. You know, when you're, whether it's in your hometown or when you're traveling across the world, like, Ask the questions, find out the stories, and you, you'll often discover that there is, there's just something incredible lurking behind every corner. How long have you been involved now with Atlas Obscura? Since 2011, so yeah, just over five years. What drew you to them? I had been, my previous job was I hosted a show where I wandered around New York and talked to people who were doing strange and interesting things. So people like the founder of the Morbid Anatomy Library, which investigates uh, death and cultural attitudes toward Mm -hmm. it. In Brooklyn? Yeah, in Brooklyn, in Gowanus. Um, So I was into things like that, of sort of uncovering these hidden stories and seeking out the unusual. And I had been working on various, various nonfiction projects and then Atlas Obscura had been a website for two years at that point, and they had just decided that they wanted to create a book and were looking for a writer to put it all together. And when I heard about the project, I just thought, yes, absolutely, of course, this is perfect. You've spent a fair amount of time investigating oddities underground in New York City, right? Yeah. Yeah, the underground, the sort of hidden behind doors or upstairs. Um, one of my favorites that I just actually visited last weekend that I brought someone to is this place called the New York Earth Room. And it's in a a building in Soho that's just looks like a residential building. It's not really clearly marked. If you look at the the list of um, buzzers, it says New York Earth Room, but you would have to know to go there. And it's on, I think it's on, it's on Worcester Street in, in Soho. And you press the buzzer, someone lets you in, they don't say anything, they just open the door. You go up the stairs and you walk into a room full of two feet of dirt. Two feet of dirt. That's it. In a room. <laughs> yeah. In, in a, a building in New York City. Yeah. It's Why been is it there? Well, it's an art project. It's been there since 1977 and it was created by this guy named Walter de Maria, who also does some sort of land art projects around the world. He has another art installation just a few blocks away in Soho called The Broken Kilometer. And it's just these rows and rows of a gold rod that's been chopped up, but it's a kilometer long. 
And so, I mean, it's free to go to this place. You just have to know about it. And those are exactly the kinds of places that we like to uncover. That accent of yours is not a New York City <laughs> accent, is it? Not quite, no. I've lived in New York for seven years, but I was born in New Zealand and then grew up in Australia. Have you always been drawn to off-the-beaten-path places, wherever you've been? Definitely. And I, I think it's it's also like you notice everyone who works at Atlas Obscura just has this desire to know the stories. And I am someone who, from a young age, probably like nine or ten, used to go to bed with a desktop encyclopedia under my arm and just flip to a random page and see what's going out there in the world. Like, what are people doing and, and how can I find out about it? And I think what we've tried to do with this book is show people the wide, wide range of perspectives from which people see the world and how fascinating that is and what that can teach us about how we live as well. How many entries are in this book? About 700. Wow. And that that's actually very few compared to how many we have on the website. And this is sort of why the book was created, because at this point we have 10,000 entries in our database on atlasobscura.com. And it's hard to know where to begin with those 10,000, if someone says, like, what's the best of the best of Atlas Obscura? You think, oh, my goodness, like, there are so many ways to slice that selection. And so with the book, we tried to create a sort of sampler platter or like a, a greatest hits album that says, this is what we're all about. This is a starting point, And you can do your own investigations from here. So that being said, how challenging was it to narrow down to the sites that you have in this book? Uh, there were a lot of uh, heated discussions. <laughs> We, it was difficult because each of us, um, there were three of us who mainly worked on the book, which is the, the co-founders of Atlas Obscura, uh, Josh Four and Dylan Thuris and me. And we started with this huge spreadsheet of our own favorites, the things that really stuck out in our mind. And they were things like the 200 foot wide flaming hole in the Turkmenistan desert and the Tempest Prognosticator, which is this weather prediction machine that uses freshwater leeches who ring little bells when they get agitated to predict an incoming storm, uh, which is on display at this little museum in Devon, England. So little things like that that had really stuck in our mind from all the places that had been gathered for the website. But then it was tough because we had to find a good balance both geographically and in terms of subject matter. So we we got a few notes from our editor that were like, you might want to scale back on the museums that show wax models of dermatological diseases. Like probably one or two is enough. You have 20 in there right now. <laughs> and it's hard because individually these places are so incredible. But when you put them all together, they do start to look very similar. So we, we had to scale back in certain categories. But You referenced museums. So what yeah. are among the more interesting museums in this great world of ours? Oh, my goodness. Well, our favorite sorts of museums are the ones that are open for like three hours on a Tuesday, and that's it. They're the ones that are run by one person who is very passionate about a certain topic. There's a museum in Independ Independence, Missouri, that is run by a woman named Leila who collects Victorian hair art, which is things like bracelets and necklaces and um, little lockets with jewelry that is made from woven hair from people of the Victorian era. And that's just what she's into. That's her jam. And that's what she has a museum for. And yeah, that like barometer world I mentioned earlier, an entire museum dedicated to barometers. 
So those little museums run by one person are always fascinating to us. I think there's a museum dedicated to asparagus somewhere <laughs> yes. in the world. I just on I was just on the uh, book tour and I was in Wisconsin, which is home of the Mustard Museum. So little places like that we we adore. You mentioned Turkmenistan mm-hmm. and this 230-foot-wide hole that's been on fire for, what, some 40 years now? I think it's since 1979 because... It's essentially the result of an industrial accident because what happened was these Soviet miners were drilling for gas in the desert and they found it, but they also found a giant cavern right beneath the surface. So when they dug into it, the whole ground caved in and took their drilling rig with it. And so in response, perhaps driven out of panic, they lit the whole thing on fire because all this methane was escaping. I guess they thought, well, we'll burn it off. It might take a few days, but it will die down. And it's been burning since 1979. It's incredible. It does look like a portal to hell. Talk about the eternal flame. Yeah, exactly. And that is not the only fiery place featured in your book either, right? There are others. Yeah, there are. Oh, my goodness. I One of our subcategories in the index is like fiery locations because it is a, a common topic. Um, There are things like fire festivals where fireballs get lobbed back and forth. Um, I'm trying to think of more. Yeah. Oh, there's a place in Pennsylvania called Centralia where there is an underground fire that's been burning for years and years that it's split roads apart. Um, Yeah. There's a lot of fire in the world. (laughs) Speaking of festivals, though, there are a whole bunch of fascinating festivals that take place across the globe, huh? Yeah. I think one of my favorites is in this little village in Spain. It's called the Baby Jumping Festival. And (laughs) it's really strange looking. It's basically what happens is infants who are under the age of one year old get lined up on these mattresses in the middle of the street, these narrow little stone streets. And they're watched over by their parents as these men dressed as devils take a run up and leap over them. And the idea is that they do this in order to absolve the babies of sin, I suppose, original sin. They're not quite old enough to have acquired other types Uh of sin. But it's quite the sight. And people, people flock to it. You know, there are videos on YouTube of people who are like, they're jumping over the babies. I don't get it. But okay. So... Stuff like that, and we like to celebrate. How much are you traveling to check out unique places? I'm traveling as much as possible. I mean, this is a question that we get a lot, the three of us, because we are all travelers, and the way that this whole project began was that Dylan and Josh were traveling both across the U.S. and across Europe and wanted to find a way to make a compendium of these off-the-road places. Um, But, you know, we have our limits. There are only three of us, and there are 700 places in the book, and... We we did not go to Blood Falls in Antarctica, the three-story waterfall that looks like blood that's falling down a glacier. Um, and what we do is we rely on – we have this incredible community of users who visit com and submit their suggestions for places to include in the Atlas. So one of our first submissions, which has become one of the favorite places of ours, are these root bridges in the north of India that are made from – the aerial roots of these trees that get woven across uh, rivers. And so it's this incredible sort of Tolkien-esque site of uh, living bridges made from trees that are woven that take like 15 years to become a real solid bridge that you can walk across and that can last for centuries. And 
that's a place that I haven't been to. It's it was submitted by a user who lives in India, and so we rely on these people to tell us like what's going on in their neck of the woods. Definitely, we travel to as many places as as time and budget will allow. What's the most far off place that you've ever been? Ah, I the I was in Poland uh, in Krakow, and they have this salt cathedral there where it used to be a salt mine and. Some of the workers there just started, I guess, out of boredom, carving things into the walls. And there's one particular section that you walk into, and it's a chapel in which there are these chandeliers made of salt crystals. Just everything is made of salt. It's really beautiful. And I was there with my sister, and we we licked the walls just to make sure that it was all, <laughs> all legit salt. And yeah, it did taste salty. Now, speaking of legit, how do you make sure that the submissions that you get from your users are legit? Good question. Um, and this is something that we thought may be a concern because as the site grew in popularity, we thought, well, people are going to try to prank us. Like, uh, we need to be on top of that. But we found that that it well, first of all, it's so hard to tell what's real and what's not because there are so many places that when they come in as a submission, we think, ah, that can't be real. How can people be making bridges out of the aerial roots of trees? Like, surely that's not possible. That's just from a fantasy book. And then we look into it by, you know, contacting the people in the area or reading from other sources or if it's a historical place, looking into like the past of that and the media coverage of it and discover that these places are legit. And that's been one of the most rewarding things about working on this book is researching the history of things like the Boston molasses flood that happened in 1919, in which this giant vat of molasses burst and this sticky tsunami coursed through the streets and killed people and knocked over elevated train lines. And you just think, how can molasses do that? Yeah. That's utterly ridiculous. But it's real. And it was reported on in the New York Times. It's the the process of discovering those details is so much fun. Another thing that is real that I was surprised to learn is that there is a vial of Thomas Edison's last breath somewhere. Yes. And that that is sort of an act of clever marketing because the story is, it's close. Uh, So what happened was Thomas Edison in his final moments was lying in bed and his son saw that there was a rack of test tubes in the room. So he took one and uncorked it and sort of swiped it through the air in in the vicinity of Thomas Edison's mouth and then corked it up again and sent it to Henry Ford because they, the two of them were good friends. And so now this vial, this little test tube full of air swiped from the vicinity of Thomas Edison's mouth during his expiring moments is now in the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn in Michigan. So it's, you could, yeah, you could frame it that way. It's legit. The severed finger of the groundbreaking astronomer, inventor, and philosopher Galileo is on display at a museum in Florence, Italy. Yes, I love this story so much because in Florence, the main museum that everyone goes to is the Uffizi. And people stand for hours in the in the high season just waiting to see these works of Renaissance artwork. You've got like your Da Vinci, your Botticelli. And just around the corner from that museum is a little science museum where there are no lines to get in. It's much less popular. And it has, it has things like globes and orreries and telescopes. But among all those scientific instruments is a glass egg that has a gilded decoration. And inside that egg 
is Galileo's middle finger. <laughs> and it was swiped from his corpse by someone who was transferring his remains about 100 years after he died. It's been in that museum since 1927. But we, we just love it because... There are several ways to interpret that middle finger. It's pointing toward the sky. You can say that it's simply indicating the heavens, or you can read it as a message against Galileo's detractors, but I I just adore it. Dismembered body parts are not uncommon. There are other entries here involving dismembered body parts. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of relics and mummies and um, the skeletons of saints. And it was interesting when putting the book together because... There is, especially in the United States, there's this idea of anything related to death and human remains being like this weird macabre thing that you're only into if you're like a weirdo goth. Um, But in Europe, it's much more a part of life. You know, you have like the catacombs in Paris and Odessa and the there are all these bone churches in Eastern Europe where they have chandeliers made of human bones and decorations on the wall with like a hip bone and a femur. And so we just wanted to include it as part of life. Like we celebrate life and death all wrapped up together. Um, I think one of my, one of the most compelling stories that's related to human remains in the book is the self-mummifying monks of Japan, which was this certain sect of Buddhism called Shigendo. And for a few centuries up until I think it was the end of the 19th century, some of these monks in northern Japan engaged in self-mummification. So what they did was they began with a very restrictive diet, which was basically just nuts and seeds. And the idea was to strip your body of fat. They combined that with a a rigorous exercise uh, regimen. And then after, I think, about three years of this, they got even more restrictive. They just started drinking sap from the urushi tree which is usually used to lacquer wood and so the principle behind that is that you lacquer your internal organs as you are alive Mm. and once that had been going on for a while and they were sort of emaciated and the end was nigh they would go into a tomb seal themselves well no not seal themselves inside (laughs) just yet i'm skipping ahead but they would go into this tomb and sit in the lotus position and recite mantras And every day they would ring a bell to signal that they were still alive. And when they died, when the bell stopped ringing, the tomb would be sealed. They would stay there for a thousand days. And then their mummified body would be retrieved and put on display in a temple to be venerated. And it's just the most mind-boggling display of self-sacrifice. But a few hundred monks apparently attempted this. It was eventually outlawed in the Meiji period. Because I think the emperor was just like, you guys got to stop this. This is like really too much. But yeah, about two dozen monks succeeded in this. And there are about 16 still on display in northern Japan. Wow. Staying in Japan for a moment, there is a zoo in Japan that has a very unique way to prepare for a possible animal escape. Yes, I love this so much. So at Ueno Zoo in Tokyo, they have this thing where every year they practice the escaped animal drill. And the way that they do that is they get a bunch of zookeepers to put on animal suits and like paper mache versions of a giraffe or a zebra. And they run around pretending that they've escaped from a cage and other zookeepers will chase after them with a big net. And it's just adorable. (laughs) But all these school children watch this happen. I don't know that it's 
particularly effective because humans dressed in paper mache running around is, I would think, somewhat different than, say, an actual yeah, escaped cheetah. Just a little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's adorable. So it's An- compelling. Another great zoo story. There's a zoo in Amsterdam devoted to molds, viruses, and other creatures invisible to the naked eye. Yes, micropia. And you walk in and you can't see anything. But then you, you look through a microscope and it's there all of a sudden. I think it's it's dedicated to showing you what's there that you never realized. I went to the Van Gogh Museum when I was in Amsterdam. Ah, I missed this one. Had no. I had your book in hand. <laughs> you got to go back to Micropia. But then you'll start thinking about what's sitting on your skin all the time because there's a lot of little creatures there. <laughs> Speaking of what's sitting on your skin, let's talk about insects. I think most Ooh. New Yorkers don't think anything of squashing a bug if a bug should crawl into their home. But there is a Buddhist temple shrine for the souls of insects that die for science. Yes, this is adorable. This is also in Tokyo. Um, In the garden of a temple is a little stone that's a sort of memorial that has an inscription on it. And it was created by a guy in the 19th century who had put a biology textbook together. And as part of doing that, he had to kill some insects in order to sketch them to be able to make them stay still. And because he was a Buddhist, he had respect for all living things. He decided to honor the insects who had sacrificed their lives for his biology textbook with this memorial stone. And it's just so sweet. It's another one of those things where you could walk past this boulder with Japanese writing on it and not know what it was. But when someone points it out to you and tells you the story behind it, you go, oh, that's amazing. Christmas, of course, is coming. So with that in mind, you have to tell us about the Icelandic elf school. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. There's a lot going on in Iceland. (laughs) Um, So there is a school in Reykjavik that is devoted to the study of elves and dwarves and a bunch of other creatures. Basically, in Iceland, the belief in elves is really... Hi. There was actually a politician who was involved in a car accident and he believed that elves from a rock protected him, made it so that he didn't die. So he had the boulder that was involved in the accident transported to his front yard as a way of honoring the elves. And so, yeah, you can you can go to Icelandic elf school and learn all about these mythological creatures. With the holidays in our mind, a lot of people are traveling. There's a museum in Alabama that displays finds from unclaimed airline baggage. Yes, I love this. So you can go there. It's a sort of centralized location for lost property. So you never quite know what you're going to find there. It's unpredictable, but you walk in and there's like standard stuff like clothes and umbrellas, but there's also like... There was a prop from the film Labyrinth, I believe, that turned up there somehow because it had been lost in an airport. So you you never know what you're going to find. But as far as unique gifts go, that's definitely a good place to go. There are at least a few self-made castles worth noting. Yeah. And this is another category that we love at Atlas Obscura is the idea of the one person who wakes up one day with an idea and then spends like decades building some castle. This idea that there is one person who wakes up one day and has an idea or a vision in their head for something to build and then just spends decades building it. And there are things like castles, um, castles built by one person, things like Kano's Castle in, I think, Colorado. There's also in just north of Madison, Wisconsin, there is a roadside 
thing, I don't even know what to call it, project um, called Dr. Evermore's Forevertron. And it is this sort of Victorian space machine built out of junk, scrapyard Hmm. stuff. And the guy who built it, he started working on it in the 1980s and he had this alter ego in mind. His name is Tom Every, but he saw himself as Dr. Evermore. And his idea was that he would climb into this sort of egg-shaped capsule at the top of the machine and blast off into the heavens. And yeah, there's a there's a guy in Madrid, uh, Don Justo, he used to be a monk. He has spent decades of his life hand-building a cathedral. Just <laughs> The dedication is incredible. Um, the reasons are really varied. Sometimes it's like trying to impress a woman. Sometimes it's just... Sometimes it's the voice of God. It it varies so much, but the dedication of these people is incredible. On the flip side of handmade things, what would you say are among the more fascinating natural wonders? You referenced a couple, including uh, Bloody Falls. What was that again? Oh, Blood Falls yeah. in Antarctica. Yeah. yeah. That's an amazing one because it's just, it looks like blood streaming down a glacier. So just visually, it's incredible. But I, there are some creature ones that I really love, especially ones that involve bioluminescence because it just looks so magical. And I think I have a particular fondness for it because when I was a kid, I went to, I was born in New Zealand and I visited with my family this place called the Waitomo Glowworm Caves. And it's on the North Island of New Zealand. You go in there, it's really dark in these caves. And it's sort of a standard cave experience of like, oh, stalactites and stalagmites and wow. But there's this one section where you look up and on the ceiling are what look like, it just looks like a galaxy. It's incredible. But each of the little, what look like shining stars is a bioluminescent fungus gnat that's in its larval stage. And bioluminescence just the the glow it just looks so beautiful there's also um in japan again in toyama bay at a particular time of year there are these bioluminescent firefly squid that make the whole bay light up in this beautiful electric blue i just love things that glow (laughs) (laughs) the wonders of nature yeah (laughs) this book is divided up by continent right Mm -hmm. yeah it's continent um we it's it's funny, like we had a bit of a struggle figuring out how to lay it all out because it is an atlas, so you sort of expect that it will be geographically minded, but then we also considered just laying it out by category. But then some things can be filed into multiple categories. So we compromise by having it by continent, but then also having that index at the back with the topic areas, things like human remains and uh, treacherous paths and dangerous bridges, those sorts of things. So you can go to that as well. So this book is quite hefty. Have you ever thought about putting it into a guidebook so people can travel around with it? Yes. And we get that question a lot because people sometimes wonder, is this a guidebook? Like, should I be trying to cram this giant tome into my backpack when I go across Europe. That's exactly what I thought. Yeah. And we did think about that when we were considering the format of it, but we also want this to serve as, it's not really so much a bucket list or like a, you should definitely go to all 700 of these places or you're not a legit traveler. That's definitely not the attitude we have. It's more like, here's a book that you can 
keep on your table or you can take with you, whatever you prefer. But it's showing what is out there in the world, not necessarily in a way that says you have to go here, but just to show you what what perspectives there are in the world. And we we want it to inspire a sense of wonder and we want it to make you think what's out there in my neighborhood even that I don't know about, that I can discover. Do you ever worry that Atlas Obscura will run out of wonders to explore? <laughs> Initially, that was a concern. And then when we saw the volume and the consistent rate of all the suggestions that were and are coming in, we realized that in this world's wonder is infinite. There's just so much out there. And I even notice it in my day-to-day life. Like working on this book and being involved with Atlas Obscura has changed the way that I see the world. I now look for things. I notice things on buildings that I'd never seen before. And I think as long as you walk through the world with that mindset, you will never stop finding wondrous things. Well, the book is Atlas Obscura, an explorer's guide to the world's hidden wonders. Ella Morton, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Claire Drake. And thank you for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.